I love when the Word of God is read with passion. You believe what you're reading. And uh, hopefully we believe the Word of God. Good to see each of you here on this Independence Day. We celebrate our nation's 245th year of independence. Isn't that something? Praise God. Amen. Before we get to the message, and I'm not sure how much of the message we'll get to, <laughs> it's been a good service already. The worship was just spot on for me. I was able just to get lost in it, in the presence of God, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, I, I want to just say a few words first before we go into Matthew's gospel. Uh, I, I want to share that uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln... President Abraham Lincoln said, America is the last best hope on earth. Former President Abraham Lincoln, respected by all, the last great hope on earth. Why? Because it's the freest country in the entire world. Spanish Americans, they have it better here than in any other country on the globe. Irish Americans have it better here than any other country on the globe. Asian Americans have it better here. European, whatever country, Americans, Germans, Italians, they have it better here than any other country in the world. Jewish Americans, white Americans, Anglos, they have it better here than any other country in the world. Black Americans have it better here than any other country in the world. There was a professor from Brown University who said he thanked God that, he, that his parents came here. They were slaves when they came here. He wasn't thanking God for the slavery, but he thanked God that somehow by God's providence he landed in this land and this is his country. He's been back to Africa and he said, I'm telling you right now, this is the greatest country in the world. Is this true for every American? Unfortunately, it's not. It's not. But quite honestly, it's not true for anything that everything is perfect and right. Uh, you hopefully wore seatbelts coming to church today. Why? Because seatbelts save lives. But do seatbelts save every life? No, they do not. In fact, there are recorded incidents where seatbelts cause death. But I can promise you when I get in my truck, even knowing that fact that seatbelts have caused death, I'm still going to put my seatbelt on because it does save lives. If you're an American, you're blessed. You're very fortunate to be an American. To not appreciate being an American is not to appreciate liberty, freedom. And in this generation, Unfortunately, there are many who do not appreciate the freedom that America affords. Dennis Prager, I love Dennis Prager. He's a great uh, Jewish American. He said, quote, the natural human yearning is, to be, is, to not, is not to be free. The natural human uh, yearning is to be taken care of. And the more you're taken care of, the less free you are. You either take care of yourself, your family, and your neighbors, or the government will take care. 
But if the government takes care of you, you give up something. You give up freedom. And the sad thing about our nation at this time is that half of America is willing to let the government take care of them. I'm not against our government. It has a place. Biblically, it has a place. But never should government take care of us. Our freedoms that we have are because we ourselves, is called self-government. We determine And we're thankful to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He gave us the ultimate freedom from sin. But we also, as Americans, have freedom. That doesn't mean we give up the fight for freedom either, by the way. On July 4th, that's today, right? Independence Day. You ought to be hanging a flag in your front yard. Fight for freedom. Go to the Walmart, go to Target on the way home and buy a flag and stick it in the ground outside of your house today. And I hope that you have a problem finding a flag. I hope there's not enough flag. I hope the flags are already taken, that all the flags have been bought from the stores in our, in our city. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's a great fight. It's a worthy fight. People who are against the flag, people who are against the star-spangled banner, they've taken things. And you generally, the reason people view America negatively is because of what they've been taught And they've been taught inaccuracies. They've been taught half-truths. I believe that we should teach in our school system about slavery. But we should teach all the truth about slavery, not just one little angle of it. I believe our children deserve to hear the truth. The good, the bad, the ugly, they need it. Don't take for granted our nation. Did you, have you ever listened to the fourth uh, stand, or the uh, fourth uh, uh, verse of the Star-Spangled Banner? Right now, there's a lot of attention paid to the third verse. Uh, some are upset, saying that it speaks against uh, sla- uh, slavery. It does not. It's actually referring to the British Army and the slavery, the captivity of Americans who were told, if you don't fight with us, we'll kill you when they were captured. But the fourth verse of the Star-Spangled Banner says this, O thus be it ever when freemen shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's worth fighting for, freedom. It's worth it. Try to get a better picture of the truth from a source outside of a liberal textbook or professor. It'll make you thankful that you belong to this country. That's all I'm going to say about it. I'm just thankful to be American. I'm proud of it. I'm a, I'm, I'm a white, gray-haired uh, American, <laughs> and I'm proud of it. <laughs> just as I hope whatever color, whatever nationality 
you've come from to this country, I hope you're just as proud. I'm not better than you, and you're not better than me. We're just all Americans. Amen? <laughs> okay. All right. Take your Bible, Matthew 24. Let's get into the more important stuff. That is the Word of God. Where the Bible speaks to freedom and the things that we just talked about, I'm not hesitant to speak to them. But I don't want to just make it a public announcement about America. This is more about uh, our nation and other nations of the earth and where they stand in reference to God. And as much as I love my nation, I will tell you that in the end, this nation will not exist. Every nation on the earth will bow down to Jesus. Every nation. So as we enter chapter 24, Jesus, we find Jesus responding to the questions of his disciples. He said in verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not, or do, uh, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They're looking at the temple and the edifice of the beauty of it, the gold surrounding the top of the temple that Herod put, and all the 20, uh, 12 by 12 by 20 foot stones, uh, marble that were stacked so well that if you took a knife, you couldn't fit the knife between the stones. They didn't need to have mortar because they were perfectly cut one upon another. And they're looking at this edifice. They said if you looked at it in the evening sun, the gold just, just put a glow over the temple. And this, the white, during the middle of the noonday, this, the white marble just shone as well. It's a beautiful edifice. And they're looking at that and going, Jesus, don't you think this is just a beautiful edifice? And Jesus is like, I'm telling you right now, not one stone will stand upon another. Why did he say that? He said that because he had just left the temple for the last time. And when he left, he said, this place will be left desolate. In other words, the Spirit of God is departing as I leave. You're looking at the building, you're, you're, you're loving the building, you're loving the religion, but you're not recognizing that God's Spirit is no longer there. And he goes further, and he sat down on the Mount of Olives just outside. So Jesus literally left the Temple Mount, walked down, went through the Kidron Valley, came back up to the other side outside of the city, and he's now on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking down at Jerusalem, looking down at the city walls, seeing the Temple, seeing the Temple Mount, all of that. And he sat down and he said to the disciples, came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? You just said that the temple's going to be leveled. When's this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Interesting answer. I think our young people, I think many of us today need to pay attention to that. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Jesus wasn't referring specifically to us in this day. He's, a, he's referring to the end, because they're asking about the end, about his second coming. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And, of course, many of these things did take place in the days of the disciples and of the early church, and they're still happening. We still have rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So whatever we're experiencing in false teachings and people being led astray, whatever we're seeing with 
uh, rumors of wars and wars. It's still not what Jesus is referring to. He's talking about what's going to happen right at the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. By the way, the famines and earthquakes, we, we have those all the time, right? It happens. We just came out of an epidemic. We still have the lingering effects of that epidemic. It's still there. It's just that many now have recovered and, and many have been inoculated. And so, you know, we're not seeing COVID as we did a year ago. But, but these things are happening in our day. But yet none of that. Listen, you take all the earthquakes, take all the, uh, the um, natural disasters, and all of them together aren't going to be what we're going to see at the very end or what's going to happen at the very end. And he says this, then they will deliver you up, I'm sorry, at the, at these, are the, are, these are but the beginning of birth pains. When you see all that stuff, it's still not the end. That's just the beginning of the birth pains. When does a woman uh, have birth pains? When does she go into labor? She doesn't go into labor in month, in, in, in month one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's in the ninth month that she goes into labor. At the end she goes into labor. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Again, these things are happening today. People are hated for their faith in Christ today. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. We're seeing that. We're seeing apostasy in our day. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Are we not seeing that today? lawlessness, the heart growing cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is not a doctrine for perseverance, that if you'll somehow persevere, you'll be saved. It's a doctrine saying that those who are truly saved will persevere. The Lord has hold of them. And he will bring them through to the end. And when, when pressure's really on, I mean, how many of you are facing persecution on a weekly basis because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Probably not many. But when that day comes, if you are being faithful to share the word of God, then, then you will experience persecution. And when that persecution comes, many will fall away because they're not really saved. They, they liked hanging out with Christians. They liked... The, the benefits of being a Christian, but when it came down to it, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And the reason they hate me is because I declare that their deeds are evil. When you speak truth to a world that lives in darkness, they don't want the light shining. And you come as a Christian not to be arrogant, not to be belligerent, not to stick it in their face. You used to be one of them. But you come with the grace and the love of God to shine light in darkness. And they're like, we hate you for that. Get out of here. You'll be persecuted. And only those who are saved will endure that persecution. Others will just walk away. This is too hard. I can't do this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So all these things are going to happen before the end. Then he comes to verse 15, and this is the trigger for all the birth pains 
that we just mentioned that are going to happen at the end. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. God wants us as followers to understand what it means when it talks about the abomination of desolation. He wants us to understand what Jesus is saying here about the end and what's going to happen. He says this, when that happens, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In the end, when the abomination of desolation takes place, and it's going to happen in Jerusalem, if you're a Jew, get out quick if you believe in Jesus. Get out of there. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. You don't want to be pregnant at that time because you'll need to be running out of there. For then there will be great tribulation. I thought it was pretty bad when he was talking about people falling away and false prophets speaking and you got earthquakes and famines and everything else going on. I, th I thought that's pretty bad. Persecution? Oh no. Once the abomination and desolation place takes place, get out because now the great tribulation takes place. It says this, look what Jesus said, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. What's going to happen on the earth in that day is nobody's ever experienced it in any age of history. Now why is Jesus, the Savior of the world, the God of love, who came to seek and save lost people, why is he sharing such a negative word He's sharing it because God the Father is a just and true and holy God. And while God is loving and God is merciful and God is graceful, that never covers up the holiness and the justice of our Father in heaven. And, and so if you'll respond to Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved, listen, you don't have to worry about the end. But if you're one that rejects Jesus as the Son of God, you, you, you rebel against God's plan to save you, the Bible makes it real clear that God is storing up wrath for the ungodly. The reason Jesus is saying this is because he's saying that day is coming. As a church, we're not studying this in chapter 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, because we're trying to understand what nobody else on earth gets, and we're safe, and we're covered, and everything's good, and we now know we can go through and be happy. That's not why we're studying it. We're studying this to understand what Jesus is trying to say to us, and that is, you are safe with Christ if you know him personally. doesn't matter what comes your way. doesn't matter how bad things get, what tribulation you face. 
Jesus said, in this world you'll have much tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the Old Testament it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You have that promise from Jesus. Wonderful. But what about those who have yet to hear the gospel because of a bunch of weak-kneed, watery-eyed, faithless, courageless Christians who won't stand up for Christ. God saved you. Now you love him back. How? By being a witness of Jesus to the world. Jesus is telling us what's going to happen and what's going to happen to lost people because he wants us to have compassion in our heart. He wants us to go after them. He wants us to fulfill the great commission. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Teach them everything after you've baptized them. Teach them everything that I commanded you. And just know that I'll always be with you. That's his message to us. That's why we're here. And this is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. And Jesus is giving us an insight into the end. But don't think for a second that this is the first time the end is talked about in the Bible. Jesus is not the first one to talk about it. In fact, what Jesus is doing is affirming what the prophets of old said. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 10.20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. He's saying that up to the end and at the end, the Jews are going to be deceived deeply. They're going to trust in a man, the Antichrist, who appears to come to their rescue as all over the globe people are hating the Jews and they come after the Jews. And the Antichrist rises up and he brings a false peace. And the Jews embrace him. Oh, he's wonderful. He saved us until the abomination of desolation when he reveals his true character and turns and tries to annihilate the Jews, the believing Jews. <laughs> so a time is coming just before the time of judgment when Israel will suffer vicious betrayal by one who they trusted, and they'll be subjected to a holocaust unlike anything in their history. Daniel 12.1 says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. Just as the Jews are going to suffer the worst holocaust, Forget about all the sufferings of the Jews down through the ages. Forget about the northern kingdom falling to the Assyrians. Forget about the southern kingdom of Judah falling to the Babylonians. Forget about uh, any of the battles that they've lost and the great losses that Jews have had. Forget about Hitler and the Russia and the communists and what they've done to kill off millions of Jews in the Holocaust and other events in the history of, of Israel. All of it together will not amount to the Holocaust that is to come. Two-thirds of the Jews will die, will suffer. Only, only a few, a remnant, but it's a large remnant. 
will be saved at the end. So Jesus is primarily, first and foremost, he's addressing the Jews, but he's also addressing the nations. He's addressing the church. It's all here. Now, if you know your history, then you know that the Jews have suffered, but a time's coming, they're going to suffer unlike anything they've ever suffered before. And as we studied last week in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14, Jesus gave his disciples six signs. I just covered them with you. What are they? Deception by false Christ, because those guys are going to push a false peace, and they're all working for the Antichrist who brings false peace to the earth. Then there's disputes and wars among the nations. Then there's devastation throughout the world, famines and earthquakes. Then there's deliverance of believers to tribulation. Then there's the defection of false believers. And finally, a declaration of the gospel to the whole world. It, but in verse 15, all those, those birthing pains that I just mentioned that are going to be happening, those occur, but listen, um, they, don't, <laughs> they don't have the effect of what's going to happen at the abomination of desolation. Look at verse 15. So when you, by the way, when he says you, he's not referring to the disciples. He's referring to the people who are going to be around at the end, who need to hear this. This is recorded in the Gospels. Why? So that for ages to come, people would know what to expect at the end. Remember now, the disciples are asking him, tell us when you're going to return. Tell us the signs of the end. So Jesus is referring, when he says you, he means those who are going to be suffering. And so he says, when you see the abomination and desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This is the trigger. Now, for several decades, uh, the modern uh, world, the modern world has taken offense at Israel. And Israel's increasingly become a major factor in world events. Great powers like the United States, like China, like Russia, all, even nations of Europe, they all have paid attention to, to Israel. And if you've noticed, there's a turning against Israel, unlike even in our nation today, there's a turning against Israel. And if you want an in-depth teaching on the end times, go to our study in Revelation. It took a year and a half that we went through the uh, book of Revelation. You can learn a lot more than I'm teaching today, that's for sure. But there are some points worth our time this morning that I want to cover quickly with you. That during the, the end times, the Antichrist is going to head a confederacy made up of European nations. It will be likened unto the great Roman Empire. And and he will at first pretend to be Israel's deliverer. He's going to help her against her enemies. And because of that, Israel will make an alliance with the Antichrist. This is recorded in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. But after he's victorious over the nations from the south, the north, and the east, or in the west, then he's going to reveal his true character and he will show his hatred for God and for Israel. The, 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 the word is delugma in the Greek. It denotes an object of disgust, repulsion, and abhorrence. When it says abomination, it means delugma. Something that's going to happen that's so terrible, so detestable. 
In Scripture, it's used primarily to speak of things associated with idolatry and gross ungodliness. The abomination of desolation can be translated this way, the abomination which makes desolate, the abomination which lays to waste. That's what it means. In other words, the abomination causes desolation. The prophet Daniel referred to the abomination of desolation three times. Jesus is quoting Daniel here. So Jesus is affirming what was taught in the Old Testament about the end times prophecies. Now, virtually every Bible scholar will agree and identify that abomination as the sacrilege committed by Antiochus IV, the Syrian king who ruled Palestine for 10 years back in 175 B.C. It was like a surrogate Greek empire. Antiochus gave himself the title Theos Epiphanes, which means manifest God. So he's a picture of the Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist. He was a picture of the Antichrist. But even though he named himself Theos Epiphanes, manifest God, his enemies named him Epimenes, which means madman or the insane one. And he died only 12 years after he took Israel. And when he died, he was totally insane because his military was defeated time and time again by Judas Maccabeus. The, 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 in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, it describes perfectly the rule of Antiochus who gained his throne by intrigue. How does Antichrist gain the throne? By intrigue. He fools the Jews. And then, interestingly, he makes numerous excursions into Egypt. He breaks government, uh, covenant with Israel, and, and, and Antiochus uh, de desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. So he really is a preview of what's going to happen in the very end. The abomination of desolation will set off the first series of dangers and catastrophes that Jesus compared to birth pains. By the way, that's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. You say, well, what, what about the, the first three and a half years of the tribulation? I'll tell you what's going on there. Jesus said, watch out, be aware of false teachers. Why? Because for three and a half years, the world is going to push a false peace. Oh, we finally come to peace, 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 peace. All of it is a setup to deceive people to believe in the Antichrist. A false peace. Jesus talked about that. Beware of those who come as, a, as the Christ, or they come as false teachers with this false peace. And so uh, the first three and a half years, it looks like everything's wonderful. But then when the abomination, abomination of desolation takes place, when the Antichrist enters into the temple that's rebuilt and offers up an unholy sacrifice to God, Antiochus did it by offering a pig, which is the absolute most unclean animal to a Jew. So who knows what the Antichrist will do. But when he does that, that's when he announces, I'm God, you worship me. And that's when Jesus said, that's the middle point of the seven years, three and a half years in, you better head for the hills. Get out. Now, where does the church fit into all of this, in this end-time activity? Well, one of two things is going to be true. Either the church will be strengthened for this terrible day by Christ and will be able to make it through, or 
the Lord himself will rapture the church out of here. And the church will not be part of the seven years of tribulation. Now, I take that view. I believe that there will be a rapturing of the church. One view of eschatology is that because the church is not mentioned as the testing unfolds in Revelation 6, that the church has already been delivered. They've already been taken out. If you, look, if you read Revelations 4 and 5, it's all about the throne room of God. And in that throne room, we see evidence of the church is there. That those who are true believers down through the ages will be in heaven with God in Revelation 4 and 5. It's a picture. They're there with him right before the seal is broken by Jesus Christ and the judgments of God, the 21 judgments, are released on the earth. But we won't be on the earth. We'll be with the Lord. I, I, I believe that that's... I believe that. But, but there's, there, there are some loopholes. <laughs> and there are some things that uh, aren't necessarily as sure. Others believe that we will not be raptured. That the church will stay here. Believers will still be on the earth. But it doesn't matter because Christ is with us and he will cover us. He will get us through. We'll persevere through whatever tribulation comes. Many will die, but that's okay. We're with Christ. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So I'm not trying to tell you what to believe. I'm just telling you that there are more than one, there's more than one view of what's happening to the church at the end when Jesus is speaking about this in Matthew 24. It, it is interesting to me, though, that, uh, in, uh, that uh, the premillennialists, which believe the rapture, the church is raptured, they see the church in the throne room as things are about to unfold on earth. In Revelation 3.10, Jesus spoke to the church at Philadelphia, which was a faithful church. Only two churches were faithful out of the seven. He said, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. There, that's one of the foundational passages for those who believe in a rapture. Another view is that God's promise to keep us from the hour of trial probably doesn't mean that we're taken out of the world, but rather that God will keep us from the faith-destroying effects of the hour of trial. 1 Peter 4.12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So what we do know from Scripture is that whether God raptures the church or he protects them through the tribulation, the Lord will be with his people. Amen? So we can all agree on that. There will never be a time when God's church will be left alone. Amen. Now, I believe in the rapture of the church, as I said, and I believe there's some scripture that supports that, but I don't want to go into all the doctrine of that today. I'm glad to give you some passages to do your homework with if you'd like. Come and see me after the service, and I'll be glad to help you with that. Uh, and then you can make your determination. But I will tell you this, that Matthew 24 takes us from the beginning of the time that we call the tribulation right on through to the return of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming again, and we have hope in that. I don't care how bad it gets in America or any other nation or the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean I throw my hands up and say, well, to heck with all them. I'm saved. I've I'm, got my ticket to heaven. No, no. Again, we are here to make a difference by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. 
do not get sucked in to this social justice Marxism where the whole goal is to simply do good to people and help people and let's clothe and let's all these things to people and really what's behind it, you're not even aware of it. But those who came up with social justice, the whole concept, it's let's even the wealth in the world. It has nothing to do with caring for people. If you really care for people, the greatest thing you can do for the person is what? Tell them the truth about the gospel. Feed them while you're doing it. Clothe them while you're doing it. But don't be a person who's so caught up in humanitarian deeds that you lose the eternal value of the gospel in your message. That's the key. Be careful there. So the first thing that happens after the rapture of the church, if there's a rapture, is that this false peace comes. It comes through false prophets. It comes through false Christ and one great antichrist, one great ruler. You can actually follow the sequence of events that unfold here in Matthew 24. Let me give them to you again. If you want to just write them down, you can. But here's the events of Matthew 24. First thing happens is that Jesus said, don't be led astray. Don't follow these false teachers. They're going to push a peace on the world that's false. It's not real peace. Don't get caught up in it. Can't you see how... They're wanting all nations to come and be one nation on the earth. You know, the whole push, it's all there. And all the celebrity and all the politicians, they're, the liberal institutions, they're pushing for the globalization. We're all one. That's the answer. It's not the answer. By the way, climate control, uh, say what you want about climate control. The reality is this earth is not going to be destroyed by the climate or by human beings who have abused the climate. By the way, God created the earth for, for man to use. And, and God himself, when, when, the, when the earth is destroyed, it won't be the climate issues. It'll be God who takes it out. So don't buy into that bunk. So the first thing that happens is in the world's movement toward is global peace. The second thing that's going to come, you'll find it in verse 6 and 7, it describes wars, rumors of wars, nations against nations, kingdom against kingdom, verses 6 and 7. Then the third thing that's going to ha uh, come is famine. After you've had great wars, there's going to be famine. It's just a natural outflow. The fourth thing that is going to come in verse 7, earthquakes, which are representative of massive natural disasters. Not the types of earthquakes, tornadoes, and events that we see. It will be massive brought on. By, the, by God. First peace, then war, then famine, then death through natural disasters. Now, real quick, we're almost out of time, but take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 6. I want to show you a parallel between what John learned in Revelation as, as God caught him up into the presence of, of God in heaven in a second vision that he had and what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24. In Revelation 6, verse 1, it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So what's happening? You're in the throne room of God. Again, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are simply describing to you the temple of God in heaven. It's beautiful, the, the throne room, and who all's there, and what's happening, the, the level of worship that's occurring in, in the throne room of God. And then, uh, all of a sudden, 
uh, in chapter 6, it now, now things are being triggered. They're being instituted where Christ is now going to open the seal. Nobody could open it. John was weeping because nobody was worthy to open the seal. And the lamb comes forward, a lamb that says that looks as if it was slain. Christ was slain for us, right? He's the only one who can open the, the seal. And he comes forward, and, it, and, and, and when he opens it, I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, come. And he's speaking to John. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. This is the initial response of God on the earth after the rapture, if you believe in a premillennial view. This is the kickoff of the tribulation. A white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And then he opens the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. These are all judgments of God. In verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the, living thir uh, the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. He's talking about famine now. And then verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Okay, let's break that down. So the first horse is a white horse. He represents peace. The second horse is a red horse, and he represents war. The third horse is a black horse. He represents famine. The fourth seal is a pale green or ashen horse. He represents death, natural disasters, and plagues. You can see the parallels are the same as in Matthew when Jesus spoke of the end time. Jesus said, peace, war, famine, natural disaster, which brings forth massive death. And in Matthew 24, go back to Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus said, these are merely the beginnings of birth. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Friend, if you're not saved, you have rejected the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. There are no other saviors. There's a ton of false saviors. There's only one true Savior. You need to turn your life over to Jesus. He's telling you what's going to happen in the end. He's giving us full insight into it. I, 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 part of me says, I hope that I don't have to go through the tribulation. I hope the church is raptured. But the other part of me is like, no, that's going to be the best time to be here because people will turn to Jesus in unprecedented numbers. More Jews will be saved at the very end than ever in all history together. They're going to turn back to God. The point is, we have a message. We have a, a mission. The church has a mission today. 
This is not the time to get caught up in politics and worry about lesser things. It's about saving eternal souls, souls destined for hell apart from Jesus Christ. I was so thrilled this week when Carmen uh, called me, a member of our church, and she had a, a, two neighbors that she witnessed to, a husband and wife. And they said, yes, we'd love to come to church. The man said, yes, I'm, I'm facing some, some issues right now uh, with cancer, but I would love to come to church. And she had a deeper conversation with the gentleman and was able to ex- help him understand the gospel. And he said, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior. He is Lord. And this man is on his deathbed now. The Lord could intervene, but if he doesn't, this man, apart from the Lord, is going to die. But one of our members took the time to talk with this couple, these neighbors, and love them enough to share the gospel. Was it risky? The last thing you want to do is tick off a neighbor. These are people you can't get away from. It's worth the risk. It's worth the risk. She did. And this man is saved today because of that. Isn't that awesome? His wife is saved. I had a chance to call and speak with her and just celebrate that she knows the Lord and that her husband knows the Lord and that what he's facing is terrible as it is. And we as a church, we're praying. I even offered that we would provide meals for them at this time. She didn't, uh, they weren't looking for that, but we would provide them in a heartbeat. But the more important matter is not that we feed them, that we share the gospel with them. Amen? I'll never forget a pastor who told a story. If I gave you his name, you'd know his name. He's he's not well-loved by by some evangelical Christians. They think he's too harsh. They think he preaches a hard message. But I don't know how well any of us really know this man. That was, by the way, that was the same way with, with, uh, uh, I can speak of him because he's, he's no longer with us, but Jerry Falwell. You know, he'd go on CNN and battle it out with Ted Kennedy. Remember those discussions on CNN? And they made Jerry Falwell look like this just terrible fundamental mess. You know, he's just a mean man, whatever. Did you know that, I, I know this because I've sp- I spoke with Jerry Falwell and with his son Jonathan, who now is the pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church, where his dad pastored. Did you know that they would come off the studio, come out of the studio in CNN, and Jerry would turn to Ted, and Ted would say, Jerry, are we still on for this? Uh, you coming down to Mom's house in Palm Beach this weekend so we can have some breakfast tomorrow morning together? Oh, absolutely, I'll be there. Did you know that? Did you know that Jerry Falwell loved people that weren't like him? He was willing to share Christ with anyone. Did you know he had a photographic memory? He memorized, he had a church of seven, 8,000 people. He memorized every license plate. Somebody said, why in the world would... He said, because I can Matt Staver, the head of the uh, law department at Liberty years ago, now he's the 
founder of the Liberty Council. Matt Staver told me personally, he said, Greg, I was traveling out to California with the man 10 years after we had been before. We had gone out to California doing some fundraising for Liberty University. We're on our way back to California, and he said, Jerry, uh, remember that farmer up in the north country? Uh, what was his Jerry just called out his name. He said, man, if we could find that guy's phone number, I'm sure he'd love to have another visit with you. Jerry just read off the number out of his head. But Jerry used that for the glory of God. He loved people. It's too easy for us to measure and judge people. This other pastor who is oftentimes, I think, misunderstood, he, he got a call from a man who didn't go to his church. It was actually a homosexual. And this man was not afraid to speak the truth about homosexuality, although this man loved people. No matter who, what sin you're caught up in, it doesn't matter. God loves you, right? Amen? But this man called him up. Come to find out the guy's in a hospital and he's dying of AIDS. He called up this guy, this pastor. Would you please come see me? So this pastor went and visited. And the man said, I, I want you to know, I know. I've lived my whole life in this. His partner was sitting on the couch in the hospital room. And he said, I know that this life is wrong. I know I'm in sin. And I also know it's too late for me. And that pastor loved that man and explain to him the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not too late for you. And left that room that day, that man had committed his life to Christ, and this pastor went back several other times before he passed and had fellowship with him. Do not be a judgmental person. Don't be a Christian that looks down on others who aren't like you. See, we, 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 we put ourselves in this little place where it's just me and my four and no more. And we got the, the, the doors locked. That is the opposite of the call of Christ. Go into the world. The world is lost. Go into the lost world. Everybody you meet, share Jesus with them. Let's go out of our way to do that. Amen? That's what it's about. That's why we're in Matthew 24. That's the bottom line. It's not about eschatology, the end times. It's about us making sure that we don't waste the days we have here with Jesus. Amen. In closing, I want to share just because I think as a church family, it's important we fellowship and celebrate when there's victory. We have a young man who's part of the Teen Challenge program. Uh, those of you who might be visiting, uh, Teen Challenge is a wonderful ministry that's in our county, and these young men come into, I think it's like a 10-month program. Is it 10 months, guys? 15, whoa, I'm way off. 15-month program. And uh, uh, they, they, they worship with us. The, many of the staff come, the volunteers, they worship with us. And Adam and Anna Grundhofer, the director, they worship with us. And we're just blessed to have Teen Challenge, the boys in our church family. And they are part of us, are they not? Well, amen. That's right. Well, uh, Parker, 
has finished. He's completed the program. Is that right? Oh, okay. But you're going to be leaving. Take, you're, you're being taken out early. Okay. So you're heading back to Carmel, Indiana, right? Okay. Can we just recognize he's been part of our church family. Parker, just stand up. Turn and let people see your face. He's been part of us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Parker. It's been our joy to have you as a part of our church family. We'll miss you. You go back to Carmel. You find a Bible-teaching church and get locked in, okay? Let the Lord do a work in your heart. He's got great plans for you. Well, church, this is, this is good. This is, we've been all over the map, haven't we? We've covered America. We've got... <laughs> oh. This is one of those sermons, I'm going to go home and I'm going to lay there trying to take a nap and just beat myself up. What were you saying? What? No. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for the body of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for the people that I've had a chance to greet today that are new for the first time, several families. We're just thankful that they're here. And we're thankful for those who have made this their home. They've signed a membership covenant, not for the church office or for the file. They've signed it in a, along with others who have signed it. It's, it's a covenant to one another to be part of this fellowship. And at the top of the list is to love God, to worship God, and then to share the gospel. That's what we hold in common. So, Lord, I pray that today as we leave, that the Word of God, if it does anything, it catapults us into a heart of compassion for lost people and that we will share the gospel of Jesus. That's the greatest uh, project, event, program that a church can have, that every member is compelled by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel. May we go now, and may we go in your grace and in your truth. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful Independence Day. Go buy a flag. <laughs>